I'm going to be reading from Hebrews chapter 1, starting in verse 4 and all the way through chapter 2. Um, Parts of it are also in your bulletin if you want to follow along there. Having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. For to which of the angels did God ever say, You are my son, today I have begotten you. Or again, I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. And again, when he brings the firstborn into the world, he says, Let all God's angels worship him. Of the angels, he says, He makes his angels winds and his ministers a flame of fire. But of the Son, he says, Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of of uprighteousness is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. And you, Lord, lay the foundation of the earth in the beginning, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you remain. They will all wear out like a garment, like a robe. You will roll them up. Like a garment, they will be changed, but you are the same, and your years will have no end. And to which of the angels has he, has he ever said, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet? Are they not all ministering spirits sent out to serve for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation? Therefore, we must pay much, clo- pay much closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. For since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable and every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution, how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? It was declared at first by the Lord, and it was attested to us by those who heard, while God also bore witness by signs and wonders and various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to his will. Now it was not to angels that God subjected the world to come, of which we are speaking. It has been testified somewhere. What is man that you are mindful of him, or the son of man that you care for him? You made him for a little while lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. Now in putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside his control. At present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him, but we see him for for a little while was made lower than the angels. Namely, Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. For it was fitting that he, for whom and by whom all things exist, in bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one origin. That is why he is not ashamed to call them brothers, saying, I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will sing your praise. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, behold, I and the children God has given me. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. For surely it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Therefore he had to be made like 
his brothers in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. All right, so you get the baritone version of Spencer Teal this morning. Really is good. Um, it is interesting that um, the most technical passage I think I've ever preached will be um, a morning in which I'm, I'm definitely not 100%, but we'll trust that Jesus will go before us. And even if I stammer, that uh, you will have Hebrews 1 and 2 at your disposal uh, for the rest of your good life. And it is, it is good to have these chapters at your disposal for sure. Um, so Hebrews ends, or Hebrews uh, chapter 2 ends with this passage, and it says this, uh, verse 14 and following, as you've heard, but just want to highlight a few things so that you know, we know where we're going. It says, since therefore the children share of flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil. And deliver all those who, through fear of death, were subject to lifelong slavery. There is this real fear of death that tends to really just capture our attention. And that our fear of death or fear of the unknown continues to just enrapture our hearts. But then he keeps on going. In verse 18 it says, For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. And so by and large, that's where we're going, is that there is a real fear of death, there's a real fear of the unknown, and it's Jesus who can come alongside us and can actually be the one that can help us in our time of need. And so if you don't hear anything else, that's kind of the summation. I'm going to go ahead and throw it out there. If I swoon, start coughing, whatever, I can just walk off stage and you've had at least an asterisk and go, okay, that's where we're heading. So we are a fearful people. If you want to have a little fun in your life and you want to be just up for a little entertainment, I would encourage you to do a couple of things in life, of which way up there on the top is to take the Jerry Williams to a theme park and put him on a roller coaster. If you don't know Jerry, he's one of the biggest, largest, baldest, bravest, loudest, um, any other kind of EST um, words that there are in the vocabulary, he's that guy. But you put him on a roller coaster and he becomes interesting. Um, and so this past fall, he and a, and a couple of other families kidnapped, kidnapped ours and took us to Dollywood. Uh, we were driving into Dollywood, and we're like, guys, we're going to Dollywood, of which McKibben, no, I'm sorry, it was Oliver, goes, yes, we're going to Dollywood, and then looks and goes, what's Dollywood? <laughs> My kids are very sheltered. I'm not, I'm not proud of that. That's just, that's just where they are. So anyway, we got kidnapped, taken to Dollywood, but, but you know, there's, there's roller coasters at Dollywood, and so anyway, you have Jerry Williams strapped into the Wild Eagle next to next to McKibben, right? And so the two scaredy cats, both McKibben and Jerry, somehow they were paired up for this one round. And all you could hear was, help, help, I'm going to die, right? And so Jerry is just quaking, right? He is just like, he's becoming someone other than Jerry Williams on this road. 
And so, so the story is, I mean, it's a longer ride. And McKibben is like, we get out, we're like, buddy, how'd you do? And he said, Uncle Jerry made me quote scripture. <laughs> and he says, so where does my help come from, McKibben? Where does my help come from? It comes from the Lord who made heavens and earth. I looked into the eyes, and he just continues to go on in this, like, little, small, kindergarten-like way. It, it was, like, glorious. So if you know, Jerry, this is just beautiful to your ears because, like, where does your help come from, Jerry? And it, 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 he was really calling out for the Lord. And so, yeah, so if you want some fun, just buy a, a Dollywood ticket and take him. So unlike, like, roller coasters, though, uh, who really can shake us, I mean, that, that's their point is to disorient us and get us upside down and, you know, all of the, the kind of the ergonomics behind that. But... Um, they're supposed to disorient us, but there really is this, this tangible fear of death that can come up close to our hearts and into our minds. And uh, a lot of us just don't know what is beyond this life, and so therefore this fear of death is, is real. Um, roller coasters are one thing that kind of evoke that. But then, you know, there are soldiers, you know, right now on the front lines where bullets really are being shared or, you know, those types of things. And so for these soldiers or for these types of situations, you know that they are truly face-to-face with, face face with their, or their death or potential death. And what do they do in that real scenario? Where do they reach out for help? Um, in, in the very same way, like some of us can be diagnosed with some some terrible things. This world can throw all kinds of diagnoses our way. And in that fear of not knowing exactly what, how this thing is going to pan out, there's real fear and real emotion that can come out. Here in our book of Hebrews, he's wanting us to kind of face that fear and understand that fear and knowing exactly where do you reach out for help? Where do you reach out for help? Right now, on a Sunday, all across the globe, there are small pockets of believers on all corners of the globe that are worshiping Jesus. And some of them are literally in danger. They're putting their lives in danger because they worship Jesus. And so this, our brothers and sisters, these middle schoolers and high schoolers and college-age students from all over the world, just because they're aligning themselves with Jesus actually puts them in danger from governments or other authorities. They're literally putting their lives on the line because of Jesus. Where do they or who are they going to reach out for in their time of need? This semester, we are going to walk through the book of Hebrews. We're going to start in chapter 1 and go all the way through, and there's a reason for that. Because the writer of the book of Hebrews has this small Italian church, probably somewhere in Rome or right outside of Rome, and they're, 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 they're quaking or they're shaking in fear. You see, historically, we know that in this time, somewhere between 50 and 60 A.D., about one generation after Jesus' resurrection and, and ascension, we know that persecution, like true, like your life is in danger, your property is in danger, your social construct is in danger because you align it with Jesus, that we know that this little church is really quaking in fear. They don't know what to do. 
They follow Jesus, and yet following Jesus hasn't really turned out the way that they um, saw it or the way that they planned it. It actually has brought them more harm than good. We know that the dictator or the ruler Nero in the year 64 knows that he, there was a great fire in, in Rome. And he actually blames this fire on the Christians and sets forth just the, one of the most horrific scenes of persecution that we've seen in the early church. This is what they're up against. So fear, like true fear of death is at their doorstep. And the writer of Hebrews is fighting for our little congregation fighting for their attention. One of the most famous verses here in Hebrews 12, 2 says, fix your eyes on Jesus. Just be stated and you're fixed in your eyes on him and him alone. Because so many of our early church brothers and sisters here in Rome, they've started to defect. They've started to walk away from their faith. They thought that the Christian faith, or they thought that Jesus, especially the resurrected one, was going to give life and give strength and, and give security, when in fact it's done nothing but the opposite. And that's why I'm kind of, we're bringing it to our attention, because you and I have so many options. And so many of us, like this early church, and so many of our friends and our family members, they're starting to, or maybe we are starting to defect, to walk away from this faith that we once held so dear. Because quite frankly, it just doesn't make sense to us anymore. Or there's other options out there that make more sense. And so this, this little church is reaching out for anything that maybe looked promising, anything that looks stable at that point. So let's go on. Um, and so throughout the book of Hebrews, there we continue to see this one thing. The, the Hebrew church is reaching out towards something tangible or something historic or even something religious to bring comfort to their heart. So over and over, chapter after chapter, we're going to see these things that our local church is reaching out toward. Of all things this morning, our local church is reaching out toward angels. As, you read, as we heard um, that Rachel read so beautifully, 11 times here in, this, in, this, in these two chapters, we see the word angels. We know that this is where they're first putting their faith or reaching out for help is, are these celestial beings. So let's just run through real quick. In verse 4, angels, 5, angels. Verses, uh, verse 6, angels, twice. Then 7, angels. You keep going in 13, there's angels again. Chapter 2, verses 2, angels again. Then 2, 5, angels. Then in verse 7, and then also in 9. And then you have to flip all the way over to 16, I believe, and you see angels again. So over and over and over, 11 times, there's something secure and these mystical little things called angels. Now, quite frankly, angels don't play, don't have the kind of play in our society. They're usually chubby, right? They usually have some wings, and they have, like, especially Valentine's Day, you know, they're cherubs, and they're, they're slinging arrows and those types of things. And we've pretty much demoted angels, right, in our kind of religious culture, We've come to really be a little bit weary of these guys because we just don't know what to do with angels. 
But something happened here in the first century where angels were lifted up and they, they brought, or it was brought great security to them to believe in angels. So much so is angels became better than a better option than Jesus. Now, why is that? Well, first and foremost is that they preceded humans. Right? And so in the creation account and in understanding of the universe, before humans were created, we believe that angels were created, were the created ones. And so for one thing is they're older than humans. And so it makes sense to trust in, in angels more than, more than Jesus, who may or may not have been just a human. We know that a third of the angels have fallen and created all kinds of destruction in the world. But angels in the Old Testament play a key part in the Old Testament. We see that there's an angel with Moses and Elijah and all kinds of, of places. And with uh, Isaiah, I mean, angels come in and out of the stories as if they're commonplace in the Old Testament. They play a key, or they play a key part in our story. Not only Old Testament folk, but Jesus himself. Remember, it was an angel who came to announce both John the Baptist and Jesus' birth. That's significant. It was an angel that ministered to Jesus upon his, uh, upon his temptation. It was an angel who was there, right, at his, uh, at his death and ascension. So on Resurrection Sunday, we see angels. And upon his ascension, we see angels. So a part of even Jesus' story, angels are there. Here's some fun facts. One is that angels travel at great speed. That's cool. It makes us like, all right, all right, let's believe in angels. They're faster than humans. They have names, all right? So they're very, they're kind of man-like, or they look a lot like humans. So there's Gabriel, there's Lucifer, there's, there's Michael, those types of things. They're dazzling white, and they're full of glory. And so there's a phrase or a refrain that travels alongside angels. If you know much about your Bibles, you understand this phrase. It's fear not. And so because every time they appeared, people would truly quake. And I think it was a part of this dazzling part or this fear not part that really resonated with our, our early church. Because they were feared, filled with fear. And they wanted to feel fear in a different kind of way. They didn't want to fear Nero. They wanted to fear God himself. And the closest thing that they were able to put their hands on possibly were these encounters over and over and over with these angels. Angels can talk, but they cannot die. And so they were created. It tells us that they were, they were created once and that they cannot procreate. So they can neither die off or can create more. But there's all kinds of them in Revelation 5. It tells us there were thousands upon thousands, myriads upon myriads, so that we know that somewhere between billions and trillions of angels, that's amazing. We know that there's three kind of tiers of heaven, the heavens in which we can see the stars. We know the throne room of God is a different kind of heaven. But in this middle space, that's where the, the angels actually inhabit and so Elon Musk and all of his kind of adventures to understand the extraterrestrial and all of those types of things, is there life beyond this? And we're going to say, yeah, there's trillions of angels up there, and they're doing all kinds of things that are mysterious, including fighting and, and communicating and all kinds of stuff. It really is crazy. 
It was amazing to me that there's almost 280 references to angels in the Bible, 108 in the old, 165 in the new. Angels come to minister to you and me throughout the scriptures. They are um, getting people, springing people free from jail. They're rejoicing over people that come to know Jesus. They are the ones that are watching over us. They're the ones who actually, in a strange kind of way, protecting young children. That's where we get the guardian angel kind of idea. They actually answer prayer. Over and over and over, these little creatures are coming and actually doing great help for us. In fact, if you want, in fact, if you want to star, verse 14, aren't angels sent out to serve for the sake of those who are, who are to inherit salvation? This is what they do. They come and they minister to us. They come alongside us. Angels are messengers, and that's what angelios actually means. It means a messenger of God. And so they actually bring a message to God. If you go to the burning bush, we see an angel with Moses. But then if you go up on Mount Sinai, where Moses is getting the Ten Commandments and getting the law, what do you find? You find an angel who's actually getting or uh, giving the law to Moses. So just this brief overview of angels, it's easy to see that if you're like entrenched in Old Testament thought, it's easy to go, all right, well, angels play a significant role. Let's trust them. They predate humans. They're actually bringing the law to, to Moses, and they're dazzling, right? They're beautiful. They're amazing. Let's trust in them. Maybe they can get us out of this jam. Maybe they can protect us. What the writer of Hebrews is telling us is that, yes, all of this is true. And yes, we need to have an angelology that is maybe a little stronger than it is today. But to go full-fledged and to trust fully in angels is to be trusting a good thing, but not the best thing. And that's why this, this anthem or this theme that Jesus is better. Verse 4 tells us straightforward and very clear. After Jesus sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name, has, as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. It's okay to elevate angels the writer of Hebrews is saying, it's okay, but it is not better. It is not enough to say that Jesus, that angels are superior to Jesus. That is going way too far. They trusted in these celestial beings because they couldn't taste death. They were filled with glory and honor, and they were a part of some of the coolest stories in the Bible. And if you looked at Jesus and you are starting to demote his work and you're starting to see him maybe as just a man who actually died. And so it's easy to elevate, to see that why they would elevate angels over Jesus. But the writer of Hebrews is shaking them and trying to remind them and fighting for their attention and saying, no, Jesus did. Yes, he did come and he lowered himself. He was actually lower than the angels. Yes, and yes, he did taste death, yes. 
but it was only him that was actually able to defeat death for us. So if you want to find or fight fear in death, it's actually to look at the one who defeated death, not the one that can never even experience death altogether. The theme of this book is definitely Jesus is better. The Hebrew writer is telling us that Jesus is better. And he gives us a couple of reasons. Number one, we know that Jesus is better because he's the son. And we'll talk through that. We know that Jesus is better because he is a king. And we'll talk through that. We know that Jesus is better. And this is kind of the longest place of just full and rich uh, conversation. We know that he's better because he actually became a brother to us. So on very earthly, earthly themes, things that we can recognize, whether it's sonship or even a king or a kingdom or the idea of brother, this is the way that we know that Jesus is better. First and foremost, he became a son. Verse 4 and 5 again, having become as much superior to the angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. And so what is this name? For which of the angels, this is a question, of which of the angels did God ever say, you are my son, and today I have begotten you? It's never happened. God has never looked to any angel and say, by the way, you are my son. He always looks to the angels and says, you are my messengers. You are a key place in this, in this story, but he will never say that you are my son. Or again, I uh, I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. This is an important distinction here, that God has given Jesus this title or this name of son. This sonship belongs to Jesus and Jesus alone. And this is how you get someone who's fearing death out of trouble. You give them something that is stronger than, than death itself, and it comes with family. It's this idea that there is a partnership or this relationship with, with God that he has made him a son. Over and over throughout the Old Testament, Jesus is announced as God's son. God himself, he speaks three times directly to Jesus in the Gospels. Two of the three times, Jesus, or God the Father is making abundantly clear to all those who are listening that this is my son in whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. He is my son. There's a big distinction between being a messenger of God and being the son of God. To get us out of fear, we must understand this, the sonship of God. Secondly, is that um, Jesus isn't just a son, right? But he has an established kingdom. He is the king or he is going to get a kingdom. I won't read all of these, but you can see uh, verses uh, six and following. And again, he says, let all the angels worship him. And so they have actually, they're actually going to be the ones who is worshiping Jesus. Because angels are uh, ministers of the flame of fire. Verse 8 says this, Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of uprighteousness, of uprighteousness is the scepter of your kingdom. He goes on and says, You, Lord, I laid the foundation of the earth in the beginning, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you will remain. And so he just says over and over and over that God will establish a kingdom, and he will set forward somebody on a throne. 
and that is Jesus. That's Jesus' place. He actually starts this letter to saying the first, one of the first descriptions of Jesus is that he's seating, seated at the right hand of God. And so, yes, it's okay, and it may be even appropriate to look at angels. But what angels do not have is this title of sonship and definitely this idea of reigning and ruling and being superior to all things. Jesus is going to be king over all things. This is a direct quote from Psalm 45, which is a messianic passage about David's covenant lasting forever and ever and ever. Jesus' throne will never end. He will be over all things. So his all honor and all glory will actually rest on Jesus alone. Small church in the early days, when you're reaching out towards something that is dazzling, Let's not forget that that dazzle is amazing, but it will never compare to this authority and sovereign reign of Jesus himself. The metaphor gets interesting here because this kingdom, this kingdom is going to be established in, in a way that you and I don't know because kings rise up to the occasion. Kings reign and rule from on high And that's exactly what you see here in these prophecies. But this kingdom and this king will be established in a very different way. Skip all the way down to verse uh, chapter 2, verse 6. For it was not to angels that God subjected the world to come, for which we are speaking. It has been testified somewhere. What is man that you are mindful of him or the son of man that you care for him you made him this is talking about jesus you made him for a little uh, uh, for a little while lower than the angels that's verse seven is key because he, he mentions it twice you made him for a little while lower than the angels you've crowned him with glory and honor putting everything under subjection under putting everything in subjection under his feet now in putting everything in subjection to him he left nothing outside his control at present we do not yet see everything in subjection to him what you are looking at is an incomplete picture but we see him for a little while has been made lower than the angels namely jesus This is the first time we actually see Jesus' name here in Hebrews, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death so that by the grace of God we might taste, that he might taste death for everyone. This is a key distinction of this kingdom and of this king, that he and his kingdom had to actually be ushered in through suffering through lowering himself to the point of death. He came to establish a reign, and he came to establish a kingdom through suffering. That is something that the angels have never experienced. So they've never had a title of son, and they've never understood a a kingdom and reign and rule over all things. But they certainly, if they were to be able to have all of this, they certainly would not be able to do that or establish a kingdom through suffering. 
This is Jesus who has come to taste death for us, to establish this kingdom for us through, through, um, through suffering. Let's keep going in verse 10. For it was fitting that he, if I were you, I'd probably circle or at least underline that, that phrase, that it was fitting. It means that this has been a part of the plan for a long time. For him, for whom and by whom all things exist. Jesus, Colossians 1 tells us, holds all things together. By, for whom and by whom all things exist. And bringing many sons to glory should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. Our son, this king, is actually the one who would subject himself to suffering for our sake. He is actually becoming our founder of salvation. Founder here is an interesting word. Founder means the establisher. And looking and doing a little bit of research, it's not, it's not like a a founder of a company, right? Even though that there's, there's definitely that. It's really kind of a, 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 someone who blazes a trail or, or someone, some kind of uh, just journeyman who actually goes ahead of us. So it was fitting that our journeyman or our pioneer or our mountaineer, the one that is able to blaze the trail or climb the mountain first so that everybody would be able to come behind him, it is fitting that he had to do this through suffering. If I was in a little church that was about to suffer or is suffering or are, is quaking in fear, not knowing what the future allowed us, what would be such a perfect picture would not just be something that was elevated, but something that would sympathize with me and with my suffering. Isn't it fitting that Jesus would make his reign and rule through suffering, that he would actually be a pioneer. He would actually be a, a trailblazer. He would actually go before us and letting us know that he has been there before. This is Jesus. But he is the one that is going to establish a very different kingdom. It's more than dazzle and it's more than bright lights. It's more than just execution. It's actually this kingdom. What's knitted this whole thing together is suffering and blood and frustration. And this is the kingdom that Jesus says. And that he will make it perfect. Not only is he the founder of our salvation, but it would be made perfect through suffering. If you have kind of a theological construct here, it's like, how can the perfect one, Jesus, actually, how can it be made perfect through suffering? Well, Jesus knew nothing of pain before he came to this world. And so pain and suffering need to be made perfect. He had to experience the perfected, like, experience of pain. And through our pain, we have one who can sympathize with us. How about patience? Jesus, before all, you know, before he came down to earth, he actually had to perfect patience and all of these other things that Jesus had to experience here on earth in order to be the founder or the blaze trailer of our faith. But last but not least, not only is he the, king, uh, the son and the king, but he truly is our brother. 
and some of the most beautiful passage, uh, pieces of this passage. And I'll read it to us now. It starts in verse 11 and it ends up in verse 18. I pray that these words really become something that you hold onto in seasons of, of fear. That is why, well, verse 11 says, For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source. That is why he is not ashamed to call them brothers. Verse 14, Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things. This is Jesus now, our brother that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. He wants to deliver us from this fear. For surely it is not angels. Do not put your trust in angels. For surely it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of angels. He helps People, true brothers and sisters of Abraham. Verse 17, therefore, he had, not, uh, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. This is our older brother, Jesus. In all of our weakness, in all of our sufferings, in all of our temptations, he has blazed a trail for us. There is nothing, Hebrews tells us here, there is nothing that you are being tempted with right now that he has not blazed that trail and it has been made perfect through him. The world flesh and the devil able to throw anything and everything at him. He was able to absorb all of the, just the tyranny of, of, of this temptation and yet he was able to fight and conquer and win. This is our elder brother. This is the first time that we've seen this, this kind of language. A brother. Jesus had always called his, his people like disciples or uh, apostles or, or even friends, but, but never so cozy as to call them brothers. Brothers have things in common. Brothers are from the same family. And something happened after resurrection, something happened at the, after, at the ascension of Jesus in order for him to call, be called brothers. Because when Jesus dies, he takes all, all of the brother's sin and all of that sin that is on us is actually is, is, is on him. He who knew no sin actually became sin for us. And so then in re great reversal, so the imputed or the placed on righteousness is actually put on us. And so now in a great display of beauty, the sin that belongs to us is put on Jesus and the righteousness of Jesus is put onto us and we're actually on the same playing field. This is what Jesus has done for us. He has made us brothers. He has brought us up and that's what he wanted to do. He wanted to do this for us. And it is truly remarkable. And so little church, if you're scared, 
the writer of Hebrews would say. And Jesus would say, if you are scared, I was too. And if you've lost all hope, like truly, like miserably lost hope, there was a time, Jesus would say, that I was losing hope. There was a time where you wanted something other than was right in front of you. Jesus says that I felt that desire. All the comforts of this world and all the fears of this world, everything that you and I are struggling with today, especially the ultimate things of fearing the unknown, Jesus has felt, was tempted for us, and yet he won. And yet he won. The idea in this passage is that we need to learn more than just facts about Jesus. We need a relationship with Jesus. And that's why he's come to be our brother. Because it's more than just knowing about him. It's looking at him and going, you have done that for us to bring me into a relationship with me. He has come to help those who are being tempted Verse 18, for he himself has suffered when tempted. He is able to help those who are being tempted. Also known as when you are the weakest and when you are of the subject, in subjection to really falling or maybe have fallen, that's when Jesus can truly come in and rescue you. Sin and shame want to create distance between you and the Father. Jesus has come to close that gap. And when you are being tempted, and when you have been tempted, that's where Jesus comes to be his best. I wonder this morning where you truly ask for help. Where do you fear the future or not knowing where this thing is going to end up. I wonder this morning if you would look at just the complexity of these two chapters and say, Jesus, because he was a son and king and now a brother, he is worthy of, of following. Let me pray for us. Jesus, you are worthy of, of all of our praise and you are worthy of being followed. I pray now that as we come to this table that Jesus that you would you would help us to see that you've come you come to you've come to be like us so what's one way that we're going to survive suffering and pain and hunger and even death is to have one who can sympathize with our hunger and our pain and our misery and even our death. For that is certainly something that the angels could not offer us. We ask this in your good name.